the life of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Meccan period, by Imam Anwar al-Awlaqi. A'udhu billahi min shaitan rajim, bismillahirrahmanirrahim, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam, sallimna kathira. Lessons from the journey of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to al-Ta'if. Zayd ibn Haritha was the one protecting Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam from the rocks that were being thrown at Muhammad sallallahu wa sallam So Zayd ibn Haritha was protecting Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, shielding him with his own body. In the battle of Uhud we have similar stories of Sahaba using their backs not just to protect Rasulullah from rocks like in this incident but to protect him from arrows. This was the level of sacrifice that the Sahaba had. Now we might not have a chance to protect Rasulullah with our physical bodies. So if we miss that chance let's make it up by protecting Rasulullah through defending his message, through protecting his honor, through teaching others about his life, Muslims and non-Muslims. Let's do our part. Abu Muslim al-Khawlani, one of the greatest of al-Tabi'een, he said, do the companions of Rasulullah think that we will let them have Rasulullah for themselves? No, we're going to compete with them. We want to get our share of the Messenger of Allah. So even though we're living centuries past the time of Muhammad so we cannot participate physically in helping him in his mission. But it's not too late. There's a lot that we could do that would resemble what Zayd ibn Haritha did on that day. It might not ever be as great as what Zayd ibn Haritha did or what Talha did on the day of Uhud. But at least we can try and do something. And when we study the seerah of Rasulullah and we develop love for him, it needs to encourage us to go through the same footsteps that the students of Rasulullah went through. The second lesson, when Rasulullah was speaking to the people of Ataif, no one responded to him. They all rejected him. But remember what we said? Do good because you never know what the outcome will be. Rasulullah was chased out of Ataif. So he might have thought that his words did not really leave an effect on them. But among the crowds Rasulullah was speaking to was a child. His name is Khalid Al-Udwani. He's a member of the tribe of Taqif. He said, I was standing there listening to the speech of Rasulullah in the fairgrounds of Al-Ta'if. And I heard the Messenger of Allah recite Surah Al-Tarat. And I remembered it then when I was still an unbeliever. And when I became Muslim, I already knew that surah. So here you have Rasulullah giving a speech to adults. Nobody cared about what Rasulullah said. But there was a child in there who remembered and memorized Surah Al-Tariq by listening to it from the mouth of Rasulullah in a taif. And years later, Rasulullah is seeing the harvest of the seed that he planted in a taif. So do good, because you never know what the outcome will be. Number three, we talked about what happened between Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and Addas. Didn't we remember Addas, the Christian? Over here you have an example of da'wah through action. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi started by saying Bismillah. An Islamic act. This Islamic act, even though it seems simple and small, was the cause of the Islam of Addas. Because Addas 
Never heard this before in this land of the Arabs. They don't say Bismillah, they don't start in the name of Allah. And that opened up a conversation between Rasulullah and Adas that ended up with Adas admitting the prophethood of Muhammad and believing in him. So sometimes you might do something without paying attention, but it's attracting the attention of others around you. And that might open the door for them to have some curiosity. And that will be the beginning of their studying of Islam, which might end with them accepting the religion of Allah. So sometimes our da'wah could be indirectly through our action. And the reputation of the Sahaba عنهم, that they developed after Islam had a major role in attracting many of the other Arabs to Islam. So it wasn't necessarily their words, but it was their behavior, their character, the way they changed in Islam. Now Rasulullah had to leave a Taif. He was rejected by the people in the Taif. And we said earlier that with difficulty comes ease. إِنَّمَا الْعُسْرِ Rasulullah went through a difficult time, hardship in a ta'if. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala followed it with a blessing. Rasulullah was reciting Quran in the desert and some jinn happened to be in the area and the words of Quran attracted them and they came to Rasulullah and learned from him verses of Quran and ended up becoming Muslim. What are jinn? Jinn is a world of creatures that has intelligence, lives with us on earth, have quite a similar structure, life structure like we do. They have clans, families, tribes, nations, they speak different dialects, languages, follow different religions. So they are pretty similar to human beings. The difference is that they were created from fire, we were created from clay. They see us and we don't see them. But there are uh, jinn who are Christian, there are Muslim jinn, there are Jewish jinn. There are jinn who speak Arabic, jinn who speak English, jinn who speak Russian. And they might even follow the customs of the land that they live in. And many of these uh, supernatural or strange events that people talk about and you see on the front pages of tabloids. A sighting of a UFO and all of those interesting things might easily be explained as jinn. There is an intelligent world is living with us on earth. And these haunted uh, places and all of this can be explained easily by Muslims. It's not a big deal for us. We don't have to... And you have all of this mythology that is surrounding this supernatural events and you have a whole entertainment industry that is based on it and movies and stories and Halloween and all that stuff. When there is a simple thing behind it, and that is that there is a world of creatures living with us that we cannot see. Sometimes we might have sightings of them, but most of the time we don't. While they have access to us, and they can see us. So these jinn came to Rasulullah and became Muslim. Now there might have been more than one incident in which jinn came to Rasulullah and became Muslim, because we have the story of al-jinn is mentioned twice in Quran, once in Surah al-Jinn and once in Surah al-Ahqaf. The verses of Surah Al-Ahqaf وَإِذْ صَرَفْنَا إِلَيْكَ نَثَرًا مِّنَ الْجِنِّ يَسْتَمِعُونَ الْقُرْآنِ فَلَمَّا حَضَرُوهُ قَالُوا أَنصِتُوا فَلَمَّا قُضِيَ وَلَّوْا إِلَى قَوْمِهِمْ مُنذِرِينَ قَالُوا يَا قَوْمَنَا سَمِعْنَا كِتَابًا أُنْزِلَ مِنْ بَعْدِ مُوسَى كِتَابًا أُنْزِلَ مِنْ بَعْدِ مُوسَى مُصَدِّقًا لِمَا بَيْنَ يَدَيْهِ يَهْدِي إِلَى الْحَقِّ وَإِلَى طَرِيقٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ And mention O Muhammad when we directed to you a few of the jinn listening to the Quran and when they attended it, they said, listen quietly. And when it was concluded, they went back to their people as warners. They said, oh, our people, indeed, we have heard a recited book revealed after Moses, 
confirming what was before it, which guides to the truth and to a straight path. One commentator of uh, Quran who gave tafsir asks this following question. He says, how come the jinn said that we have heard something that was revealed after Musa and they didn't say after Isa? How come the jinn brought up the name of Moses and didn't bring up the name of Jesus? And his explanation was that these jinn were Jewish. And they were following the message of Musa. So when they heard Quran, they said this is a revelation that is coming after the revelation that was given to Musa. And this commentator says that these uh, jinn actually were from Yemen, where there were some Jews. That's one way to look at the verse. It's not necessarily the only view, but it's also an indication that the jinn would follow the customs of the people in their area. Uh, they said, Oh, our people, indeed we have heard a recited book revealed after Musa, confirming what was before it and uh, guides to the truth and to a straight path. يا قومنا أجيبوا داعي الله وآمنوا به يغفر لكم من ذنوبكم ويجركم من عذاب أليم ومن لا يجب داعي الله فليس بمعجز في الأرض وليس له من دونه أولياء O our people, respond to the caller of Allah and believe in Him. He, Allah, will forgive you your sins and protect you from a painful punishment. But he who does not respond to the caller of Allah will not cause failure to him upon earth and he will not have besides him any protectors. Those are in manifest errors. So uh, this was example of something good that happened to Rasulullah after something that was difficult. This is mentioned to happen after a taif. Rasulullah now has to enter into Mecca again. Now, getting in is not like leaving. You could leave easily, but it's not easy to get into Mecca again. Especially after the news reached to Mecca that Rasulullah has went to preach his message to the people of a taif. So now Rasulullah is not able to go into Mecca again. He has to seek the protection of someone in order to enter into his own town. So Rasulullah is now camping outside of Mecca, trying to find somebody who would sponsor him and give him protection. He sent a message with a man named Uraytab to go to Al-Akhnas bin Shuraik. Now Al-Akhnas bin Shuraib was living in Mecca. He was an ally of the people of Quraysh even though he wasn't one of them. So when Al-Akhnas received the message from Muhammad sallallahu he said, since I am an ally of Quraysh, I cannot give protection to somebody who's from Quraysh. I'm only an ally. I cannot go over my authority and give protection to somebody who's from the tribe whom I'm an ally of. So Al-Akhnas bin Shuraik turned down the request. Muhammad sallallahu sent the same message again to Suhail bin Amr. Suhail bin Amr said, I cannot give you protection because the clan of Amr bin Lu'ay cannot give protection to somebody who's from Ka'b bin Lu'ay. Rasulullah tried a third time. And he sent this time a message, a request to Mut'am bin Uday. Mut'am bin Uday did accept the request. And Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa went and spent the night at his house. Early in the morning, Al-Mut'am asked six or seven of his sons to carry their swords and to put on some special clothes and to go out surrounding Muhammad sallallahu alayhi and to escort him to Al-Kaaba. When they reached there, they had a seat overwatching Muhammad Wasallam while he was making tawaf. So Abu Sufyan came to Al-Mut'am and told him, are you giving him protection or are you following him? Al-Mut'am said, I'm only giving him protection. Abu Sufyan said, if that's the case, 
we will accept your protection. So Rasulullah now is giving da'wah in Mecca under the protection of Al-Mut'am bin Jubayr. Rasulullah after the passing away of Abu Talib and Khadija and seeing the stalemate that the mission reached in Mecca even though there was still some converse trickling in but overall it was reaching to a stagnating state and many avenues were being blocked so the messenger of Allah felt the necessity of finding an alternative base somewhere where he can have freedom to propagate the message and he was actively pursuing that goal by meeting with the Arab tribes, Arab delegates during the season of pilgrimage because that is the time when people come from all over Arabia to one location, Mecca so Rasulullah would devote the days of Hajj to visiting the camps of the Arabs he would visit every tribe in their campground and give them da'wah and ask them for protection as Zuhri states, the Messenger of Allah would for the period of those years present himself to the Arab tribes at each fair, speaking with each tribal leader, but asking them only for their protection and support. He would say, I don't wish to force any of you to do anything. Any of you who agree to what I ask may do so, but I would not compel anyone not so wishing. All I want is to guard myself against those who want to kill me so that I may fulfill my Lord's mission and carry out whatever decree he wishes regarding myself and those who support me. And then Az-Zuhri says, but not one of them accepted him. Every one of those tribes reached the following conclusion. The man's own tribe knew him best. How could we accept as suitable for us someone who has subverted his tribe and whom they have expelled? Since his tribe did not accept him, they know best. That was their conclusion. By the way, Az-Zuhri is uh, one of the uh, early Muslim scholars. He was among the generation of uh, At-Tabi'in, or a little later than that. And he was the one who was given the responsibility of compiling hadith, which happened during the time of Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. This was the first official project to compile the hadith of Rasulullah and the one entrusted with this mission was Az-Zuhri and the one who appointed him to that position was the Khalifa himself, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz so again these were the words of Az-Zuhri Ibn Ishaq stated that Ibn Shihab Az-Zuhri again is relating to him that Muhammad visited some of the tribes and he narrates the story of visiting the tribe of Kinda. Rasulullah went to them, gave them da'wah, they refused him. Rasulullah next went to a tribe or a clan called Banu Abdullah, the sons of Abdullah. So Rasulullah went to them explaining Islam, and then he told them, and look at how Allah has chosen for you a good name. You are the sons of Abdullah. But also they turned him down. Next, Rasulullah went to the tribe of Banu Hanifa and they treated Rasulullah so bad uh, as Zuhri says, none of the Arabs gave him so rude a rejection as they did. And subhanAllah, these same people, Banu Hanifa, are the ones who years later are going to lead the worst revolt ever against Muhammad which happened right before he died and it was only ended in the time of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq and this revolt was led by Musaylam al-Kazab Musaylam al-Kazab was from the tribe of Banu Hanifa Musaylam al-Kazab is the man who claimed prophethood and uh, this was the greatest uh, revolt and one of the worst uh, battles that occurred against the Muslim armies next Rasulullah sallallahu went to the campgrounds of the tribe of Banu Amr bin Sasa. Banu Amr bin Sasa, when their leader Bihara bin Firas met Rasulullah and saw him and listened to his words, he became so impressed by what he saw. So Bihara said, 
I swear, if I were to have this brave man of Quraysh, I could eat up the Arabs with him. Now, Bihar is thinking politics. He wants to recruit Muhammad sallallahu Why? To conquer the lands of the Arabs. Because he saw that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa possessed qualities that were unique. So he told Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa If we were to follow your orders, and then Allah gave you victory against those opposing you, would we have power after you were gone? So the response of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was that Al-Ardu lillah yurithuha man yasha wal-aqibatu lil-muttaqin That the earth belongs to Allah and he will give power to whomever he wishes. In other words, this is not something that I can give you. It is something in the hands of Allah. And it's not a matter of authority and power. This is not a power struggle. Rasulullah is telling him, this is a matter of religion. The earth belongs to Allah. The man then responded and said, Are we to present our throats to the Arabs in your defense? And then if God gave you victory, see power go elsewhere than to us? I mean, he understood that standing up with Muhammad is a risk. And we're going to have to fight for it. He was telling Muhammad that we're not going to sacrifice our lives and then see the power being transferred to someone else. We won't have anything to do with you. And he turned down the offer of Muhammad and rejected the message. Banu Amr bin Sasa, they went back to their homeland. And there was an old man among them who was a wise elder of theirs. Because of his age, he wasn't able to attend the pilgrimage. But whenever they would come back, he would ask them about the events that happened. So when they went back, they told him that uh, we met a young man, the grandson of Abdul Muttalib from Quraysh, and he was claiming to be a prophet, and he came to us, and we rejected him. This old man said, after putting his hand over his forehead, Could your mistake be put right? Can its consequences be reversed? I swear no descendant of Ismail ever made such a claim falsely. It has to be true. Where did your good judgment go? This wise old man told them that none of the descendants of Ismail has ever claimed to be a prophet. This is not something common among the Arabs. The Arabs don't know the concept of prophethood to claim it. The Arabs were an illiterate nation. They didn't have a history of prophethood. The last prophet that they knew was Ismail which was more than 2,000 years before that. So for them to claim prophethood is something that never happened. So this old man was saying, it must be true. Where was your good judgment? And then he said, is this a mistake that can be rectified? Is this something that we can fix? There's another narration by Abu Naim and Al-Hakim and Al-Bayhaqi. I'm going to have to read through this, it's quite long. But I, I find it a, a fascinating uh, conversation. It shows the qualities of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq anhu. Ali is the one who's narrating this story. Ali ibn Abi Talib, he says, when God ordered his messenger to present himself to the tribes of the Arabs, he left along with myself and Abu Bakr for Mina. Mina is where the uh, camps are set. Just like today in Hajj, that's where people spend the three days of Ayam Tashriq. That's where the tents are. So, Rasulullah is visiting these different Arab tribes. And Rasulullah used to always accompany Abu Bakr with him because Abu Bakr was an expert in genealogy. Abu Bakr knew the history of the tribes, their names, uh, their legends. Uh, he knew a lot about them and this was an asset that Rasulullah was taken advantage of. Because Abu Bakr al-Siddiq was a walking encyclopedia when it came to the genealogy of the Arab tribes. So Rasulullah used to always accompany Abu Bakr with him. Plus Abu Bakr was a well-known man. He has traveled widely. And he was known by the various Arab tribes. Anyway, Ali ibn Abi Talib, he says, Abu Bakr, God bless him, went forward and made his greetings. He was in the very vanguard of good and an expert in genealogy. So he came to this majlis, to this meeting of this particular clan. 
Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu walked up to them and when Ali ibn Abi Talib says وَكَانَ سَبَّاقًا إِلَى كُلِّ خَيْرٍ He was at the vanguard of every good. Ali ibn Abi Talib was telling us that in everything good you would find Abu Bakr ahead of everyone else. Abu Bakr was first. You know the story when Amr ibn Khattab said tonight I'm going to do something that Abu Bakr didn't do. And he went to Rasulullah and gave him half of his money. And he said, oh Rasulullah, did anybody else come to you? Rasulullah said, yes. Abu Bakr came to me and he gave all of his money. Umar al-Khattab said, I'll never compete with him after this. So, Ali ibn Abi Talib is saying that Abu Bakr is ahead of every good. Everything good, you'll find Abu Bakr first. He was the one who walked up to these men. He greeted them and then he said, From whom do you people come? They said, we are from Rabi'ah, the tribe of Rabi'ah, which were in the northeast part of Arabia. They might have been in the area of Iraq. Rabi'ah is a large tribe. Abu Bakr now wants to narrow it down a little further. They said, we're from Rabi'ah. Abu Bakr said, Amin Hammaha, Amin Lawazimha. It is translated here as from its mainstream or from its branch. Actually, a more accurate translation will be, are you from the forehead? Hammaha means the forehead. Are you from the forehead or are you from the branches, the limbs? Meaning you are from the lower parts of the tribe. They said, we are from the greatest mainstream of it. Meaning we are the best. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq wanted to verify that claim. To realize whether they are the elites of their people or they are from the laymen. So Abu Bakr started this conversation. He said, is out of you. Of whom it is said there is no har, no heat in the Auf Valley. Unfortunately, these too many mistakes in the translation, even though this is supposed to be a good translation of the book, but there's still mistakes in there. Correct this heat thing, it is free man. It's not heat, it's free man. Sometimes there are words in Arabic that uh, are quite similar in, in meaning, so the translator uh, might make a mistake in a kasr or a fatha. For example, in this word of heat, uh, heat is har and free is hur. So you just have a difference of a dhamma. So the translator thought that it is heat, but it is actually hur. Abu Bakr is saying, is awf of you, of whom it was said, there is no free man in awf's valley. This man, awf, was from the tribe of Rabi'ah, and he was such a strong man, that everyone in the valley was so submissive to him, they ended up saying that there's no one free in his valley. And by the way, in the culture of uh, pre-Islamic Arabia, strength and power and sometimes even violence is viewed with respect. Uh, this is one of the things that Islam came to change. That oppression is not good. So Abu Bakr said, it's out of you. Of whom it was said, there is no free man in Aus Valley. They said, no. Does Bastam bin Qais, Abu Al-Liwa, and Muntah Al-Ahya belong to you? They said, no. Is Al-Hawfazan bin Shuraik, the killer of kings and the robber of their souls, a kinsman of yours? No. Is Jassas bin Murrah, the protector of honor and the defender of the neighbor from you? They said, no. Is Al-Muzdalaf, he of the unique turban, from you? They said, no. Are you related to the kings of Kinda? No. Are you related to the kings of Lacham? No. Abu Bakr said, so you're not from the mainstream, but you are from the branch. You can see the detailed information that Abu Bakr as-Siddiq had about these people. Now, a young man from Rabi'a stood up. His name is Daghfal. His beard just beginning to sprout, meaning he was young in age. He jumped up and he grabbed the bridle of Abu Bakr's camel reciting, those who ask of us will be asked of, as for the burden of proof, we neither know it, nor bear it as responsibility. He then said, hey you, you asked and we replied, hiding nothing from you, we want to ask you something, who are you? Now it's our turn. You asked us questions, we answered, give us a chance to ask you. So who are you? He said, I'm a man from Quraysh. The youth commented, well said. You are a people of leadership and nobility, the vanguard and guide of the Arabs. There's nothing to complain about. You're from Quraysh, you're from the nobility. Now let me narrow it down. 
what part of Quraysh are you from? Abu Bakr said, I am of Banu Tayyim bin Murrah. Now Banu Tayyim bin Murrah are a small clan in Quraysh, wasn't famous, they weren't known for any special strength or uniqueness. So the young man said, you have shown the target shooter where the bull's eye is. He said, is Qusay bin Kilab, he who killed at Mecca those trying to conquer it, a kinsman of yours. That man Qusay, who drove the rest of them away and brought his own people from all over and settled them in Mecca, took over the temple and set Quraysh in the dwellings. The man who was therefore known as the unifier and about whom a poet spoke the verse, was it not your father who was called the unifier by whom God brought together the tribes of Fih? Abu Bakr said, no. We're not Abd Manaf, the ultimate giver of advice, and Abu al-Ghadar, the great leader of your stock. Abu Bakr said, no. And Amr bin Abd Manaf, Hashim, who prepared bread and meat to the dish. You remember when we talked about Hashim? So he was now famous as being the one who started the tarid who prepared bread and meat into the dish of Farid for his people and all of Mecca, was he not of you, the one of whom the poet said, Amr al-Ula prepared the Farid for his people, while the men of Mecca were destitute and under famine. To him they attribute both the journeys, that of the winter and that of the summer. Quraysh were as an egg, which when split open came to have its best part, its yoke, as the Abd Manaf. They are the wealthy as is no other known. And they are those who say, come on in to the guests. They are those who strike down pure white sheep, those who protect the innocent with their swords. How fine for you, if you stay at their abode, they will protect you from all ills and accusations. So is he of you? Abu Bakr said no. Then the youth continued, you must be related to Abdul Muttalib, that venerable man of much praise, controller of the Mecca caravan, and the feeder of the birds of the skies and the wild beasts, of the lions in the desert, he whose face shines forth like a moon on a dark night. No, said Abu Bakr. Now remember, Abdul Muttalib, they called him the feeder of the lions and the beasts and the birds because of the hundred camels that he slaughtered and refused to take anything of it. Then you must be of those who have the privilege of ifada. No. Perhaps of those who have the privilege of hijabah, no. Then those with the privilege of nadwa, no. Then you must be of those who have the privilege of siqayah, no. Are you then of those with the privilege of providing rifadah, no. And he's answering no to all of these questions. Now this was becoming too much for Abu Bakr. So Abu Bakr just turned around and tried to leave. And he pulled the bridle out of the youth's hand. The young man then responded by saying, he recited a line of poetry. He said, Your flood has met a greater flood that is coming from me. Once it will crack it and another time it will go over it. So you thought that you have flooded me. I've shown you that I could send over you a greater flood. And then he commented, well, I swear, our brother of Quraysh, if you had continued to hold out, I would have proven to you that you belong to the lowest class of Quraysh, not to its elite. Rasulullah came over smiling after this interesting conversation. And Ali told Abu Bakr, well, this Bedouin has turned out to be a disaster for you. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq said, yes, and there is never a catastrophe without another that follows and calamity is compounded by words. Ali then continued and said, we went to a meeting that you can see calm and dignity in the people. And uh, Abu Bakr, he went to them and greeted them. And he asked them, where are you from? They said, we are from Banu Shayban. So Abu Bakr came to report to Rasulullah and said, these are people who have experience and power. So... Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he went to the group leaders which were Mafruq bin Amr and Hani bin Qubaysa and Al-Muthanna bin Harith and Al-Nu'man bin Shuraik. And the person who was closest to Abu Bakr al-Siddiq was Mafruq bin Amr. And he was described as having two braids 
that came down to his chest. Now, Abu Bakr asked him, how many are you in number? Uh, Mafruq replied, we are more than a thousand strong and a few men can't beat a thousand as they say. And then he said, and how would protection be with you? He said, we go to the limit and every people have their limit. Abu Bakr then asked, and how is it when you make war with your enemies? Abu Bakr is trying to assess their strength. They said, when we meet in battle, we are the angriest of men. We take greater pride in our steeds than our sons, care more for our swords than our camels. Victory rests with Allah. Sometimes he grants us victory, sometimes others victory over us. You seem to be a member of Quraysh. So Abu Bakr replied, yes. And then he said, have you heard of the Messenger of Allah? So Mafruq said, we have heard that he says he is the Messenger of Allah. Meaning we don't yet know, but we've heard that rumor. Uh, so then Mafruq wanted to hear from Muhammad sallallahu after Abu Bakr has paved the way and opened the conversation. Now Rasulullah came in and he started speaking. Uh, and he spoke after Mafruq asked him to. He said, what do you propound, O brother of Quraysh? He said, I call upon you to bear witness that there is no God but Allah alone who has no associate. And that I am the messenger of Allah. I ask you to shelter and protect me until I can carry out what Allah has ordered me to do. Quraysh came out against Allah's commands and have denied his messenger. They have sided with wrong against right. But Allah is all-powerful, all-praised. So, uh, Mafruq, he did like the words of Rasulullah He asked him for some more. Rasulullah recited to him some ayat from Surah Al-An'am. Mafruq said, And what else do you propound, our brother of Quraysh? I swear these are not words of any earthly mortal. If they were, we would know them to be. So Rasulullah recited ayat from Surah An-Nahl. Anyway, after Rasulullah has explained the message of Islam, Mafruq liked what he heard, but then he said that we have people behind us and we cannot speak for them. I mean, we are just a delegation from our people. And he said that we cannot give a commitment now, we have to go back and consult our people. And he said words, he said, uh, I consider that abandoning our religion and following you in yours because of one meeting we are having with you, which had neither introduction nor follow-up, and without our giving it full consideration, nor examining what the consequences would be of what you suggest, that would be a lapse in judgment, rashness, and inadequate, inadequate consideration of consequences. So, Mufruq, these people were very calm, they didn't want to rush into judgment. They said, we have to think it over. Uh, we can't just leave our religion after one meeting with you. So you can see that there's a difference between these uh, different tribes. With Al-Ansar, they immediately accepted. Because the grounds were prepared for them. But with Banu Shaybay, they said, I mean, there's, there was no introduction to this and there's no follow-up. We can't just convert right now. So let's go back to our people and consult them. But I want you to also hear the opinion of Han ibn Qubaysa. There were three leaders. One was religious, one was political, and the other one was tribal affairs. So, Mafruq, he spoke his opinion, and now he wants to let Hani speak. So, uh, Hani said, I heard. Actually, the words that I just read to you were the words of Hani, and now they wanted to uh, get the opinion of Haritha. So, Al-Haritha said, I heard and I liked what you said. So, they were all impressed. Uh, I was impressed by your words, but our answer should be that of Hani bin Qubaysa. For us to leave our religion and follow you after one sitting with us would be like us taking residence between two pools of stagnant water. One Al-Yamama and the other Al-Samawa. Rasulullah did not understand that. He said, and what might those pools of stagnant water be? Al-Muthanna replied, one of these is where the land extends to the Arab world, and the other is that of Persia and the rivers of Kosro, Kisra. We would be reneging on a pact that Kosro has placed upon us, to the effect that we would not cause an incident and not give sanctuary to a troublemaker. This policy you suggest for us is such a one thing that kings dislike. 
As for those areas bordering Arab lands, the blame of those so acting would be forgiven and excuses for them be accepted. But for those areas next to Persia, those so acting would not be forgiven and no such excuses would be accepted. If you want us to help you and protect you from whatever relates to Arab territories alone, we would do so. In case you didn't understand what Muthanna is referring to here. The land of Banu Shayba was bordering the Persian Empire. So their military leader, who knows the contracts between them and the Persian Empire, and Muthanna, he said, We have a, an agreement between us and the Persians that we will never give sanctuary to a troublemaker. And this religion of yours is something that kings do not like. So look at the wisdom that he realized from the, his meeting with Rasulullah that this is something that kings would not really like. Because kings want to have uh, authority in their hands to abuse others and this is a religion that is to free people. He said, we cannot offer you protection from, from the Persian side, but we can offer you protection from the Arab side. So, the land that is bordering the Arabs will promise you that we will protect you from them. But the area that is bordering Persia, we cannot promise you anything. We cannot stand in front of the Persian Empire. It's too much for us. Rasulullah responded by saying, Your reply is in no way bad. For you have spoken eloquently and truthfully. You've been honest. But God's religion can only be engaged in by those who encompass it from all sides. Rasulullah did not want to have half a deal. Did not want to have a compromise deal. Rasulullah wanted to have complete protection. Rasulullah said, the religion of Allah needs to be surrounded from every direction. I want an absolute commitment to protect me. You can't say that I'm going to protect you from one side but not from the other. What we can learn from this is that in our negotiations and in our deals, we need to keep in mind that the religion of Allah needs to be held in high esteem. And we should not bargain and negotiate in it. And we should not compromise its terms. And if the agreement does not fulfill the Islamic terms, we don't have to involve in it. Rasulullah felt no need in joining an agreement even though he knew his situation in Mecca. He knew how difficult it was. And he knew how badly he needs to leave. Nevertheless, he did not want to enter into an agreement that was half-hearted. Halfway through. And this is where you put your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rasulullah left it up to Allah azza wa jal and refused to accept that particular agreement from the people of Banu Shayba. Ibn Ishaq, he goes on with the story of Al-Ansar. Now, who are Al-Ansar? Al-Aws wal Khazraj, when they became Muslim, were called Al-Ansar, which means the protectors. Al-Aws wal Khazraj were the two Arab tribes that were living in Medina, and they are descendants of the branch of Qahtan. See, the Arabs divide into Adnan and Qahtan. Qahtan are the Arabs of Yemen, and Adnan are the descendants of Ismail So Al-Aws and Khazraj were from Qahtan. They were neighboring three Jewish tribes, Banu Quraidah, Banu Qaynuqa, and Banu Nadir. Al-Madina was unique in that it offered a protection from three sides. There were two rocky tracks on the east and west, which are inaccessible for armies to cross. And then there were the trees, the farms of Medina towards the south. So the only direction where an army can attack Medina is from the north. So it has this natural protection from three sides. Rasulullah visited the camp of Al-Aws Khazraj in Hajj. Actually, at that time, he visited Al-Khazraj. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he came in, he asked them, Who are you? 
They said, we are from Al-Khazraj. Rasulullah said, are you the allies of the Jews? They said, yes. Rasulullah said, can I speak to you? They agreed. So they sat down and Rasulullah invited them to Islam. Subhanallah, they were very eager to hear what Rasulullah said and they immediately accepted and they told Rasulullah we have left our own people for they have such discord and dissension between them not found in any other. Perhaps God may unite them through you. We will go forth among them and invite them to you, presenting to them this religion we have accepted from you. If God should unite them around you, then no one will be dearer to us than you. This immediate acceptance of Islam by the small group of Khazraj, the number was six. How come it happened that way? How come the Ansar were not resistant to the message of Islam like the other Arab tribes? There are a few reasons. Number one, the people of Medina were in a constant warfare among themselves. Al-Aws and Khazraj were fighting an age-old war between themselves. Imagine two tribes living in the same city and they are fighting with each other. So they were earning for peace. And when these men of Al-Khazraj heard the message of Rasulullah they said, maybe Allah will unite us through you. We really need peace. We've been at each other's throats for so long. That's one reason. Second reason. The Aws and Khazraj had a natural monotheism was appealing to them. Because they were neighbors of the Jews. And the Arabs used to see the religion of the Jews being superior to theirs. Why is that? The Jews were learned. They had scripture. They had teachings. They had knowledge. While the religion of the Arabs was merely uh, myths and idols and killing of their uh, daughters. So, if it wasn't for the uh, Jewish prejudice and arrogance towards the Arabs, most likely Al-Aws al-Khazraj would have been Jewish. But the reason why they didn't convert is because the Jews used to always treat them as if they are a lower class and as if the Jewish religion is only suitable for the elites. And sometimes there would be conflicts between the Arabs and the Jews. So the Jews would say that this is a time of a prophet that will appear. And when he comes out, we will follow him and we will kill you like the people of Ad were killed. So number three, the Arabs also knew that this is the time of a prophet. So the Arabs of Auswal Khazraj were prepared for this message. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared them. They knew about the monotheistic religion of the Jews. And they knew the value of Tawheed, the oneness of Allah. They knew that the prophet is coming. And they needed peace. And number four, a few years before the hijrah of Rasulullah a battle called Ba'ath occurred between Al-Aws and Khazraj. This was such a violent war, it ended up killing most of the current leadership of both tribes. So imagine having two clans with the majority of their leaders, their seniors killed. So now you have a people that are looking for leadership. They do not have an established structure of leadership among them. So when they heard the message of Rasulullah they were looking forward to have him lead them. So all of these were elements when combined together it made Medina a very fertile ground for the spread of Islam. And uh, some of these things were mentioned by for example there's a statement by Aisha radiallahu anha she said that the uh, war of Bu'ath was preparation by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the migration of Rasulullah and she says, Their leaders were killed. Because remember, we said that the people who tend to be the most resistant to the truth are who? The leaders of a society. Now Al-Aws and Khazraj do not have that hurdle in front of them. The leaders were killed in the battle of Bu'ath. And Ibn Ashaq, he says, One way 
which God facilitated their acceptance of Islam was that the Jews were there with them in their country. These were followers of the scripture and men of knowledge. Though they themselves were polytheists and idol worshippers, they had previously attacked these Jews in their territories and whenever disputes had arisen, the latter had told them a prophet will now be sent, his day is coming, we will follow him and give you the same faith as that of the peoples of Ad and Iram. So subhanAllah you can see how Allah was preparing Al-Aws wal-Khazraj for this great responsibility. Now, you might dislike something, but in it is a lot of good for you. This war that happened between Laos and Khazraj and killed many of them, even though it caused a lot of bloodshed and harm to them, it was one of the reasons that brought them closer to Islam. Anyway, so these six men accepted Islam and they told Rasulullah we'll go back to our people and start preaching the message. And they made an appointment with Rasulullah to meet him next year in the season of Hajj. So a year passed by. And now the season of Hajj approached. The six came back as twelve. We had the original six. In addition to them, six more. The earlier six were all from Al-Khazraj. There is one narration that says five were from Al-Khazraj and one from Al-Aws. Now the, in the second year, there were twelve, ten of them were from Al-Khazraj and two from Al-Aws. They came to Rasulullah and they gave him pledge of allegiance and it was called the pledge of the woman. Even though none of them was a female. These twelve were males, but the pledge of allegiance was called Bay'atun Nisa, the pledge of allegiance of the woman. Why? Because it did not include within its terms any pledge of fighting. The terms of the pledge were, We pledge to the Messenger of Allah on the night of the first meeting at Aqaba that we would not associate any other God with Allah, that we would not steal, commit fornication, kill our children, make false accusations, nor disobey him in anything good. He told us, if you keep to this, you shall have paradise. But if you give up any of this, and you are punished for it in this world, then that will provide atonement for you. But if it is overlooked until judgment day, it will be up to Allah to decide whether to punish or to forgive you. So you can notice here that the pledge includes them committing themselves to Islam, and worshipping as individuals. But it does not include any terms relating to protection or fighting. And that's why it was called Bi'atul Nusa. Why was it given this name? Because this was the pledge of allegiance that women would give to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, there's a fiqh issue to be dealt with here. You notice here that these are major sins. Stealing, fornicating, killing children, making false accusations. Uh, these are all major sins. And there is a had, a punishment prescribed. Now, Rasulullah says here, that if the punishment is fulfilled in this world, that will forgive you of the sin. However, if the punishment is not done in this world, then it is up to Allah to either forgive or punish. So if somebody steals, and they're punished for their stealing by the cutting of the hand, then that forgives the sin. That forgives the sin. The sin is gone. But if the punishment is not implemented, on the day of judgment, it is up to Allah to forgive or to punish for that particular sin. And that is the, that relates to Al-Kaba'ir, the major sins. Now, Rasulullah appointed Mus'ab bin Umair to go and teach the people of Medina Islam. You can call him an ambassador, you can call him a teacher, you can call him a scholar. He had all of these roles in one. Mus'ab ibn Umair, radiallahu anhu, came from a wealthy family in Quraysh. Mus'ab ibn Umair was the most spoiled young man in Mecca before Islam. Uh, he used to dress, he used to wear the uh, most expensive clothes. 
he would have the best perfume and his mother was taking care of him so she was a very wealthy woman and she didn't have many kids so she was taking very good care of them and he was very spoiled he became Muslim his mother boycotted him she stood against him and subhanallah Mus'ab bin Umair who was wealthy turned from wealth to poverty from uh, living a spoiled life to living a tough and harsh life and when Mus'ab bin Umair anhu, was killed in the battle of Uhud the witnesses of his burial said he did not even leave behind enough money to buy a coffin and he had only obviously since he's a shaheed he's not wrapped in any special clothes but when he was fighting he had on himself one piece of cloth that was not sufficient to cover him so they said whenever we would cover his face his feet would appear and whenever we would cover his feet his face would appear so we went to Rasulullah and said what can we do he said well cover his face and then use some tree leaves to cover his feet Musab ibn Amir was given this difficult task and major responsibility of being his representative the personal representative of Rasulullah in Medina so now Musab ibn Amir left Mecca and he went to reside in Medina since Al-Aws and Khazraj were enemies Musab ibn Amir had to lead them in Salah because none of them would accept praying behind an Imam from the other tribe one day Musab ibn Amir radiallahu anhu was with As'ad bin Zurara who was his host As'ad bin Zurara was the one who was hosting Musab bin Amir so they went to visit some of the Muslims they went into this farm garden and they were sitting there and the Muslims were coming to them to learn they would come and meet with Musab bin Umair and he would teach them he would hold halaqat, sessions for them in this place they happened to go to a neighborhood of Medina that was part of Al-Aws Al-Aws's territory and remember that the majority of the Muslims were from which tribe? Al-Aws or Al-Khazraj? from Al-Khazraj so Islam now was spreading with speed among Al-Khazraj but it wasn't catching up with Al-Aws so now Mus'ab ibn Umair is trying to make inroads within Al-Aws so they went to an area that is in the land of Al-Aws and they sat there the leaders of Al-Aws were close by Sa'd ibn Mu'adh and Usaid ibn Khudair Sa'd ibn Mu'adh spotted Mus'ab ibn Umair and As'ad ibn Zurara Sa'd ibn Mu'adh told Usaid ibn Khudair I want you to go to those two men and tell them that we don't want them around misguiding the weak and foolish among us and if it wasn't for the fact that As'ad bin Zurara was my relative I would have done that myself As'ad bin Zurara was in a position that subhanallah uh, prepared him to carry this role of hosting Mus'ab As'ad bin Zurara was from Al-Khazraj but he was the cousin of the head of Al-Aws so on the mother's side he was a relative of Sa'ad bin Ma'ad so he had ties to both tribes both to Al-Aws and Al-Khazraj Sa'ad bin Ma'ad told Usaid bin Khudair I want you to go and kick them out and if it wasn't for the fact that As'ad bin Zurara is my relative I would have done that myself so now Usaid bin Khudair went up carrying his spear towards Mus'ab bin Umair and As'ad bin Zurara As'ad bin Zurara saw him coming and he told Mus'ab bin Umair this is a leader of his people be sincere with him do your best because if he becomes Muslim many people will follow him Mus'ab bin Umair said if he listens I would so now Sayyid bin Khudair came and he stood above them carrying his spear speaking to them in a very harsh tone he said we don't want you around here misleading the weak and ignorant among us and then he said and if you care about your lives you better get out of here otherwise this is my spear to be killed so he threatened them and 
one of the attendees of the halaqa, he said, well, you are the one who is misleading us, and he started an argument. Mus'ab ibn Umair responded calmly by saying, how about you sit down and you hear what I say. If you like it, you can accept it. If you don't, you can reject it. Usaid bin Khudair said, fair enough. And he sat down. He stuck his spear in the ground and he sat down. Mus'ab ibn Umair started reciting to him ayat of Quran, giving him da'wah, explaining Islam. As'ad bin Zurara said, even without him speaking a word, we were able to see Islam entering his heart because of the calmness in his face and the radiance of light coming out of it. We could see it on his face. And when Mus'ab ibn Umair finished with his session with Usaid ibn Khudair, Usaid ibn Khudair said, what does one have to do to join a religion? Mus'ab ibn Umair told him, wash yourself and you come and pray. Usaid ibn Khudair, he did that and then he came back and he said, now I'm going to send you a man, if he becomes Muslim, all of his people will follow him. Usaid bin Khudair went to Sa'ad bin Mu'az. Now Sa'ad bin Mu'az saw Usaid bin Khudair and he said, I swear by Allah that he's coming to us with a different face than the one he left us with. The Arabs had this uh, farasa thing. Farasa is the art of reading the face. And it is reported that the Shafi'i went to Yemen to learn this art. So it was an art that existed. And a, a Chinese brother, a Muslim brother said that also in China, some people have this art. You, you look at the face of a person and you try to read what is in their hearts, what, is, what they're thinking about, what's going on with them. There's an, an incident uh, when Umar ibn Khattab was Khalifa. He saw a man passing by and he said, this man is either a sorcerer or he has been a sorcerer in the past. So they went and asked this man, he said, Yes, I used to be a kahan, I used to be actually not a sorcerer, a fortune teller or a soothsayer. He said, yes, I was a soothsayer. So Umar al-Khattab just knew it by looking at his face. So Sa'ad bin Mu'ad, when he looked at the face of the Sayyid bin Khudair, he said, he's coming back to us with a different face than the face he left us with. Sa'ad bin Mu'ad told him what happened. The Sayyid bin Khudair said, everything is fine, don't worry about it. There's a slight problem, however, and that is that Banu al-Harith, want to kill As'ad bin Zurara because they know that he's your cousin. In case you don't remember the names, As'ad bin Zurara is the man with the Mus'ab bin Umair and he's the cousin of Sa'ad bin Mu'ad. Usayb bin Khudair said, Banu al-Harith, this is a branch of al-Khazraj, want to kill As'ad bin Zurara because he's your relative. Usayb bin Khudair made up the whole story, that wasn't true. The whole reason why he made it up is he wants Sa'ad bin Mu'ad to go and meet. Mus'ab bin Amir. Sa'ad bin Mu'ad stood up angry and he said, they want to kill my cousin. He picked up the spear and he left and he said, you haven't done me any good. And he went there. And he came and we can see anger on his face. And he was carrying his spear. Mus'ab bin Amir saw him coming. As'ad bin Zarara told Mus'ab, this is the leader of his people. Do the best you can. Sa'ad bin Mu'ad came and Sa'ad ibn Ma'ad, he just uh, took a look at the meeting and he realized that the story that Sayyid bin Khudair reported was fabricated. Because it didn't seem that they were terrified. It didn't seem that there was a plot to kill As'ad bin Zurara. Otherwise they would have been acting differently. So Sa'ad ibn Ma'ad realized that Sayyid bin Khudair has made up this story because he wants him to come and see what's happening. Sa'ad ibn Ma'ad came and he told As'ad bin Zurara, he said, why are you doing this to me? Why are you bringing this man to my territory? You are taking advantage of your relationship with me. You want to mislead the ignorant and the weak among us. Mus'ab ibn Umayr responded and said, How about you sit down and hear what I have to say? If you like it, you can accept it. If you don't, you can reject it. Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad agreed and he sat down. Notice here that people of Medina are open-minded. They don't have the, the sense of hostility that existed in Mecca. They were willing to listen. So Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad sat down, Mus'ab ibn Umair, the choice of Rasulullah for this mission. Subhanallah, he had the hikmah and the wisdom of a da'ya, somebody who 
preach Islam. He started giving Sa'd ibn Mu'adh the message. Asad ibn Zurara said, I can read in his face the fact that he wants to become a Muslim. And when the conversation finished, Sa'd ibn Mu'adh accepted Islam. And what was the first action Sa'd ibn Mu'adh did? He went to his people and he said, what is your opinion of me? They said, you are the wisest among us and you are our leader. Sa'd ibn Mu'adh said, well none of you speak to me and I will speak to none of you until you become Muslim. The narrative of the hadith said, by the end of that evening, every house among Banu al-Ashhal was Muslim. The whole clan of Banu al-Ashhal, which were a branch of al-Aws. So now, a huge breakthrough was made within al-Aws. So you have both al-Aws and al-Khazraj. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Muhammad wa alayhi wa sallam. Please proceed to the next CD.